You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunnett. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, your friend and mine from MMAJunkie.com and USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing this week? I'm doing all right, despite the fact that you kind of ruined my day by misdirecting me to your, your bullshit coffee stand. Is this before or after you caused an hour and a half delay in our recording because you, quote, got an assignment from the, quote, newspaper that you work for? First of all, the delay was not quite an hour long, even. You've already exaggerated. It seems like three hours. <laughs> we were supposed to do this four hours ago. <laughs> we were supposed to do this show three weeks ago. I finally showed up. You know, and... You keep telling me about this coffee cart every time I come no, over here. No, I keep telling you to go to the coffee cart. cart because every time you come over, you bitch about the coffee at the gas station. You're the dude who goes and gets his coffee at a gas station I and then bitches about coffee. the service and the coffee there. Well, every other gas station in town seems to be able to get their shit together without having a bunch of ragamuffins running around the store. But anyway, I go to your coffee shop, uh, your, your little coffee cart across the street here, and I realize... It is not so much a regular business, per se, as it is something for drug-addicted teens to do. I feel like I was upfront about the fact that it has that there's Christian overtones over there. Christian overtones I can deal with. Drug-addicted teens serving up my coffee drink is where I start to get a, a little nervous. You're like the dude who goes to Denny's at 4 in the morning and then is like, Oh, my service is not impeccable. I'm, I'm surprised. My moons over my hammy is not prepared to my liking. I'm just saying, if I want to do business with drug-addicted teens, I will go to the strip club like a normal person. This week's co-main event podcast, as usual, comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, Ben, I'm just going to go ahead and steal this joke from your wife. But uh, another win this weekend for John. Oh, my God, I can see my bones, Jones. <laughs> but at what cost? And in round number two, is it time to say goodbye to the bad guy? And is Razor Ramon getting royalties for this shit or what? <laughs> and in round number three, it wasn't the best or the worst UFC ever, but it just might have been the weirdest. Yeah, probably the weirdest. Ben, this week, the co-main event podcast is going to have a real cool, smooth jazz feel. Uh-oh. Because we got some songs from listener John Crowley, who it turns out is a really talented trumpet player. What I want to know is if there is a single listener of this podcast who is not a talented musician in I some form. I seriously have no idea how all of these talented people appear to be entertained by our podcast. Here's, here's I assume what I they're patronizing us. Since we have all this talent out there, I think that our next contest, which you and I have been debating what to do about... Uh, for one thing, you mentioned that the year anniversary of the Co-Main Event podcast is coming up. Yeah, it's next month. We have a ton of shit, like actually really good prizes this time, really good prizes, uh, sitting around waiting for us to do a contest. What if we do a contest where we challenge our listeners to come up with a CME theme song? I love it. I love the idea. And they can take it whatever direction they want. Smooth jazz, rap singing, maybe somebody wants to go all, you know... I need a minute to myself, face the pain, step to this, whatever genre of music that is, uh, that the UFC seems to favor so much for their intro Into music. Into pieces. There you go. 
Uh, whatever they want, people can send us stuff in. And even if they're not like actually good musicians, which apparently everybody who listens to the show is, but you know, they write some lyrics, they play a little ukulele and record themselves singing over it, whatever. Yeah, I like it, man. We'll, we'll let's get to work on it. We'll make okay. it official in a couple weeks. Anyway, I thought since last week we went with uh, Tommy Sundquist's uh, Swedish hardcore band Skunks, which I was really into. By they the were way. good. They're very good. I thought that this week would be a good change of pace to to go with John Crowley, who's who's a super talented jazz trumpet player, as it turns out. So if you like his stuff, you can find more of it at johncrowleymusic.bandcamp.com. One more time, johncrowleymusic.bandcamp.com. I think you can buy his stuff there for like a dollar. It's just a ridiculous bargain. Anyway, uh, like we always do about this time, let's get started with a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Pedro, who is not Pedro the Wolf, I don't think. No, if you were Pedro the Wolf, you would tell us. You would identify yourself yeah. as Pedro the Wolf. I yeah. think I think you're, uh, according to the uh, Geneva Conference, you're, uh, you, you have to identify yourself if you're Pedro the Wolf. Pedro, not the Wolf, writes... I want to ask your opinion about a minor detail, but it really pisses me off every time I see it. Every time a fight goes the distance, as soon as the fight is over, immediately the fighters put their hands in the air and celebrate like they won the fight. Last UFC, Ben Henderson and Gilbert Melendez did it in total sync, almost looking like a dance routine. Yeah, they did do that in total sync. It was impressive. We all know it's a, it's common practice because they think it will persuade the judges to score the fight in their favor. I know judging is bad in MMA, but do you really think that the judges at the end of a fight are going to say, I don't know who to give it to? That last round was really close. Uh, I'll give a 10-9 to Henderson because he's the most enthusiastic. Really? What do you guys think? <laughs> well, first of all, let's acknowledge that the judging in MMA is sometimes so screwed up that, man, who the hell knows what influences them? Yeah, I think that's exactly the point. Like, uh, it's all obviously an offshoot of, of trying to look like the dude who won the fight. And, yeah. and so you walk away, put your arms in the air for all you know. Judge Cecil Peoples might see you do that. Maybe he didn't even watch the rest of that round. He might just see you put put his arms up yeah. and he be like, up. oh, looks like it went pretty well for that guy. He, he looks up from his crossword puzzle, sees you with your arms up, and is like, okay, well, that looks like a winner. He wouldn't be doing that if he hadn't won the fight, no. right? It's also, you know, it's kind of like in baseball where, you know, if it's, a, if it's a full count and the guy laces one right there on the corner and you decide you're not going to swing, you, as soon as that ball hits the catcher's mitt, you're throwing your bat off, getting ready right. to take your base. Yeah. Uh, and then when the umpire calls strike three, you look at him just like you're totally fucking shocked that that could happen. It's almost like the opposite of in basketball where when you commit a foul, you jump back and put your <laughs> hands up as if to say, as if to signal, signal to everyone in the arena, I just fouled this guy. <laughs> I guess, I mean, it's a good point that, yeah, that's probably not going to influence the, the outcome of the fight. The, my question would be, why not do it? You yeah, know, well, yeah. I mean, fighter, what's the alternative? Like you hang your head in shame and yeah. walk back to your corner? That doesn't seem like it would be any more effective. Well, I seem to remember uh, the pretty close fight between Vanderlei Silva and Michael Bisping a few years back. Uh, and it ended, you know, it was pretty close back and forth, but it ended, I think, with Vanderlei kind of taking it to Bisping there right at the end. And we weren't sure who was going to get the decision. But I remember Cage Potato had a, a photo of of Vanderlei walking around with his hands up and Bisping lying like face down in the mat. Uh, and the caption was something Cage Potato-esque hilarious as something along the lines of, you know, when you're the champ, you don't have to walk around yelling about how you're the champ. You just lay there and bleed like a winner. <laughs> That's another good point, though. People are taking pictures. Yeah. And you don't want to be the dude who's 
who's looking like a sad sack after the fight is over, you yeah. be on the cover of USA Today the next yeah. day. What if, yeah, somebody gets that picture where you won, you're Benson Henderson, you won the fight, but Gilbert Melendez is standing there with his hands in the air like goddamn Rocky, and, and you're just you know, standing there tucking your hair behind your ear. The second question this week comes to us from Tom. He writes in, so the card for UFC on Fox 8 was announced, and it features a bout between Brendan Schaub and Matt Mitrione. This indicates that the quote-unquote indefinite suspension of Mitrione is actually just the typical three-month layoff between fights. Thoughts? You know, that that's obviously true. Like, he's not, as far as layoff-wise, has not really been punished. I mean, he's been kind of called out publicly by the bosses. He's supposedly been fined. But some, again, we don't know how yeah, much. He's been fined some hefty amount, so they say. Uh, and now it's back to business as usual. It does make you wonder that, hey, you, you didn't want to wait like six months or something, you know, before his next fight. Because this is just pretty typical timing for a UFC fighter. Yeah, and really what it it might come down to is like a problem with the uh, nomenclature that the UFC used. Because I know after they announced that they had ended the suspension or whatever, and Mitrione was once again a member of the UFC roster in good standing, and he was going to get this fight against Brendan Schaub. He gets his blazer back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he can wear U- that blazer the again. The UFC was kind of like, oh, well, we didn't ever mean for the suspension to be punitive. We just we wanted to suspend his contract while we figured out what to do with him. And it, and I think John Morgan put on Twitter or something like that probably would have been better to call it an administrative leave or something <laughs> like that, because when you call it a suspension and you say that a dude is suspended indefinitely, we're going to read that as a kind of punishment, not yeah. as a like, we're just being careful here to make sure we don't make the wrong move. Yeah. Kind of when the guy does something and then the word suspension gets immediately thrown around, we're going to think punitive. Yeah. It's like if you're a cop and you shoot somebody in the line of duty, they put you on administrative leave while they figure out whether you should have shot that dude or not. Uh, they don't say suspension because that implies you probably shouldn't have shot that dude. And again, you know, this was the kind of infraction where where Matt Mitrione uh, said a bunch of shit that he shouldn't have said, uh, r- revealed himself maybe as as not such a deep thinker. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, it, it wasn't like you know he didn't kill a, a carload of school children or no. anything like that. So no, not you yet. Ca- you kind of <laughs> no, not yet. He, you kind of expected that he would be back and fighting in the UFC at some point. It did seem like like it was uh, a kind of a brief. Uh, Suspension, I guess, if you want to call it that. I was, I was kind of, uh, taken by the, the story that I saw this week on MMA Junkie, also by, I believe, John Morgan, who I swear I'm not here to shill for. Hardest working man in MMA media. He's everywhere. Uh, the story that he wrote this week that Mitrione apologized to the, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community and said that he wanted to quote, make amends to them. Uh-oh. Which made me think, you know what? If I was part of that community, the apology would be nice, but, I'm not exactly sure if I would want Matt Mitrione to try to make amends with me for accidentally telling me exactly what he thinks of me, you know? Maybe, but maybe you don't know how he's going to make amends. Uh, pizza party? Well, that would be cool. Everybody loves yeah. a pizza party. Yeah, no, right? that'd be, that would be great. I mean, I don't care like how hateful and bigoted you've been against me. You invite me to a pizza party on your dime. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go have a slice. You know, I'm not saying I'm going to hang around and drink an orange soda with you all night, but I'm going to have a slice. The third question this week comes to us from Adam Zips. He writes, It seems to me that no one will ever stop criticizing the gloves situation. All Dana White wants to say is that it's quote-unquote unfortunate. Instead of just saying, 
it's unfortunate. Why don't they start trying to control it? Start penalizing fighters right away. There should be a warning in the locker room and should be penalized on the first offense. Or outlaw the technique? Question mark. Twelve to six elbows were outlawed and no one does it. Shots to the back of the head is against the rules and fighters don't do it. Or at least they shouldn't or else there's a penalty. I don't think new gloves are the answer. But what's your opinion on the matter? Well, my opinion on the matter would be that somebody gets punched in the back of the head in every single mixed martial arts fight. So <laughs> I don't know about about that uh, particular part of this question. I will say, though, that I think Adam Zips has a good point. And uh, I know that when we watch the fights with Dan DiStefano, the, the talented striker that you go to jiu-jitsu with a lot, drives him crazy when he sees guys yeah. sticking their fingers out there like Man. that. And he's right because there's there's no reason that you should do that. There's no reason yeah. in in a, a mixed martial arts fight why a dude should be standing there with his fucking fingers. Yeah. Pawing, with, at with, pawing at a guy's eyes with your fingers out. Uh, is will make Dan DeStefano freak out like it will make me freak out if you start talking about TRT. It's that kind of a thing. Uh, but it's true because already we do have these warnings in the locker room, right? Like we, you know that you can't go poking motherfuckers in the eye. Everybody knows that. The same with the fence grabbing, you know, all that stuff. Like it's to the point where we all know the rules. We all understand like what you can and can't do. And you're putting yourself in a situation that makes it possible for you to break the rules. Like it's not something that you have no control of. Uh, So when it happens now, take that point, you know, just, you don't need to warn them in the cage if they've already been warned about it in the locker room. Like everybody knows this. It's not like you just discovered MMA yesterday and you're still trying to figure out these crazy rules. Like it's not 1996 anymore. When Wes Sims could go to the after party and act like he was totally amazed that he couldn't stomp on Frank Mir's face in in a UFC fight. You could get away with that at some point. That point has passed. Fence grabbing, eye poking, that kind of stuff. If you do it, just take the point. Like it's just, it's way easier than asking the referee to make some kind of like moral judgment about your intention and like whether or not you totally understood what you were doing is wrong. Let's just, let's not even mess with that. Let's start taking the points. And I guarantee you, you start taking points away and you'll, you'll cut down on that stuff in a hurry. It's not like it can't be stopped. And then of course we saw, we saw those that played out in the cage this past weekend in the Oven St. Prue, John Vellante fight, and also in the Alan Belcher, Michael Bisping fight, both of which I assume we will talk about at greater length in round number three. But the real fucking scary thing about this is that somebody's going to get their career ended yeah, by one of these eye pokes. Absolutely. It was terrifying to see Alan Belcher get poked in the eye because he's a guy who had just come back from having a detached retina, which we were afraid at the time might end his career. And he was able to uh, return after a long medical layoff. And then so to see him get poked in what seemed like a really bad way, uh, it was scary. It was scary yeah. to see him go down on the mat like that and, and you know, just kind of clutching his head. So I would hope that that we do get into a situation where guys get warned the first time a ref sees them kind of holding their fingers out like that. And then if they don't do something about it, then you lose a point because – Scary man. Somebody's, yeah. somebody's career is going to. Sc- and get you know, ended. Al- along these lines, uh, it just went up on uh, MMA Junkie this afternoon. Uh, I'm sure it'll be. You know, people will have seen it uh, by the time the podcast goes up. Uh, but uh, you know, we have a story where Mark Ratner is talking about how the UFC wants to uh, talk with the Association of Boxing Commissions when they meet uh, about changing some rules, especially some rules about you know when the referee is basically making a medical determination about somebody's vision when they get poked in the eye, they, they want to address that. And also looking at addressing the, uh, 
you know, downed fighter rule about how you can just put an index finger on the mat and, and the guy can't knee you in the head. So, you know, got to give credit where credit is due to the UFC there that they are, whether they want to be or not, kind of stewards of this sport. Uh, it's good to see them stepping up and saying, we think these things are problems. Let, let's talk about fixing them. All right. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern for the podcast in re in uh, future weeks, you can get in touch with us by going to the website, comaineventpodcast.com. Click the link at the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast, and that will allow you to email the podcast. Huh? How about that? It's weird. I know, right? As for right now, uh, we're going to go ahead and roll straight into round number one. Arguably the most interesting part of John Jones's win over Chael Sonnen this past weekend didn't come until after the fight was over, at which point the replay showed us John Jones's toe snapping like a goddamn twig during what otherwise would probably have been considered one of the fight's more innocuous moments. Didn't even know that that was possible for that to happen to your toe just by like kind of pushing off of it, the balls of your foot. I'm freaked out now. It seems like it shouldn't be possible. No. And so what I wanted to ask you, Ben, to begin round number one is, does this just underscore the fragility of it all? Like we spent weeks leading up to this fight, as we always do in a, in the face of a mismatch like this, being like, well, there's no possible way that Chael Sonnen will win. Then we come into the fight, and as so often happens in this sport, turns out there totally was a way that he might have won. And so does this freak occurrence with, with John Jones just sort of underscore how fragile uh, not only who wins and loses is, but also just sort of like his potential for greatness? You know, I feel like we had one of these moments after he fought Vitor Belfort. There it was a little different because it was Vitor Belfort actually doing something to him that injured him and that could have injured him way worse. Uh, and But I felt like that should have given us the same kind of pause to say, hey, wait a minute. You never know what's going on in there. Even if you think like, well, hey, we got to throw the champion in against somebody. It's just a, a match for the sake of convenience and make a little money. Uh Big deal. He'll go in there and he'll beat up this undersized guy and uh, that'll be the end of it. And you never know. Just the same way the UFC needs to listen to its own marketing materials sometimes. The same way you can justify almost any fight you want to make by saying, well, anything could happen in a fight. You don't know what's going to happen out there. That's right. You don't know what's going to happen out there. Somebody's toe might break off. Then where you be. Yeah, this is perhaps the first sign of weakness in John Jones's uh, physical being. Yeah. He's, they, he's so busy beating the shit out of people, he hurts himself. He hurts himself. Makes me wonder if foot stomps are going to become like the uh, the tactic of choice against John Jones. Or should, saying, we, should we have Chris Lieben maybe move up and, and get a light heavyweight title shot? Are you accusing John Jones of having a glass toe? He may, in fact, have a glass toe. Oh, you're the saying his toe of, is suspect? Yeah, his toe is suspect. The problem is you would have to get close enough to him to be able to stomp on his toe. Which that is a problem. I feel if you did that, he would probably just pick you up and carry you like a baby across <laughs> the cage before you slam he slammed you down just as he did against Chael Sonnen. Let's before we move off the toe though, let's talk about the UFC's penchant for the ill-advised post-fight interview yeah. which 
this may have been the most ill-advised post-fight interview in the history of the sport because even under normal circumstances, the worst possible time to try to have a conversation with another human being might be when they have just competed in a mixed martial arts fight. And I'm talking about seconds after they have just competed in a mixed martial arts fight. Not only are they tired and adrenalized, but they are on national pay-per-view television. And it always, it, it always blows my mind that this is still an institution in the sport where even under perfect circumstances, we stick a microphone in these guys' face and be like, wow, man, so talk us through the Mickey's replay. What just happened out there? They don't have anything to fucking say. Let, let them take five minutes to get yeah. their thoughts together. Yeah. No, I think on the list of t- worst times to try and interview someone, uh, there's uh, when they're giving birth, uh, a, a, a woman giving birth, probably not the best time uh, for you to try and talk to her. Uh, there's when someone is having their toe snapped back into place. Uh, and then there's right after a mixed martial arts bout. And so they combine two and three basically by doing that. And on one hand, you want to, you want to give Joe Rogan some, some daps there for just for sticking with it. Oh, well, you know, he did a professional job. Like that would have, that would have thrown any other mixed martial arts in ring interviewer into the deep water. They would have had no idea what to do. Joe Rogan, since he's a pro, immediately is like, well, let's just get the dude a stool. Yeah, <laughs> let's get him a stool and a doctor, and then we'll keep talking to him while on his face, it looks like John Jones is maybe going into shock. Yeah, absolutely going into shock. Like, uh, get him a blanket. Don't we have, like, the firefighters to get those little, like, cheap, like, airplane blankets that they do, and they drape bring them around one of those, you? And you're like, there, you're fine. tinfoil blankets yeah. to wrap somebody up? No in. more shock. You're fine now. Was this, though, the most likable that we've ever seen John Jones in in sort of a, an impromptu media setting because he really kind of took it like a champ like a like a grown ass man if yeah. you would <laughs> yeah like, he no, we're at, not dealing with that anywhere near as well if that happens to one of oh, us oh good god no I mean he looked down and saw that his toe was bent at a pretty much a right angle and that his bone was visible through the side of his skin and he said what all good Christians say when they are surprised by something oh my goodness <laughs> Look at my, he might have said, oh, my word, which is another <laughs> another good one. But, yeah, no, I would. there's no way that Chad Dundas is doing the post-fight interview with Joe Rogan you know, uh, when his toe is cranked like that. Yeah, you're just shrieking yes, like no. you've seen a spider. I would have probably shrieked the moment it happened or yeah. the moment they told me I had to go into the cage with Chael Sonnen. I probably <laughs> would have just shrieked right then. The, here's I want, I want to stop talking about whether John Jones is likable, whether people like John Jones. You know, I... Who fucking cares if you like him? He is an awesome fighter. He is indisputably one of the world's best fighters at this point. I think before it's all over, he may very well be uh, the greatest fighter that we've seen to date in mixed martial arts. By the unless, time, unless the toe, <laughs> unless ends unless his, his career, unless his glass toe becomes an issue, unless people learn how to figure out that glass toe. Uh, but. I feel like we do this to it's become a, a thing to talk about with John Jones is, you know, his problems relating to fans and, and getting, you know, the right, the image he wants across to the media, maybe because he seems to be so image conscious that then that makes people focus on it. You know, I feel like we don't do this as much with other fighters, you know, like I, 
I don't remember when Mike Tyson was just dominating people if people were worried that he wasn't likable enough. Like, I don't feel like he should be super relatable to us. He is a fucking genius at fighting. Anybody who is that naturally good at something and has then cultivated that to be, you know, at the very top of their field, yeah, they're probably not going to be relatable to most of us who aren't that. I, I feel like that's – it's the same way I feel like when people – uh in the 2008 election, when it was the, the, the hip way to attack Obama was that he was an elitist. And you're like, well, don't you want the president of the damn United States to be kind of elite? Don't you want him to be smarter and better than the rest of us? No, man. We want it to be the guy we'd most like to have a beer with. Yeah. Unless the guy running for president is a weird recovering alcoholic, <laughs> which just happened a few, you know, well, see, elections I, ago, that's a couple the thing elections is, ago. I, I just don't know why we still focus on that with John Jones. Like, who cares if you like him? He is probably one of the greatest fighters in the world. That's why you're watching him. It's not because you think that he would want to play racquetball with you. It's not because he, you know, you think you'd want to like sit down and share a meatball sub with the guy. <laughs> and especially with Jones, it kind of felt like in that to that end, he never really had a chance because you know when he first debuted on the scene, and it was clear that he was just this wildly talented dude. I don't think we yet knew that he was going to be perhaps as transcendent as it's turned out that, that he is and, and could still be. But like you, you watched him fight and were immediately like, Oh, holy shit. This guy is, this guy's the real deal. Yeah. And you know, when he first came, came into our consciousness, he tried to do this thing where he acted like he was real humble and nice, which, you know, is probably a legitimate part of his personality, but people responded to it by being like, well, there's no possible way that he's telling us the truth. I mean, he's so good at fighting. He's got to believe he's going to win this fight against, you know, Vladimir Machushenko or whatever. And so, you know, after hearing people say that for a while, suddenly he became more confident and I think started sharing a little bit more of his actual self with people where, where, yeah, he did come across as a guy who thought he was going to win every fight. And as soon as he started doing that, everyone was like, well, he's just arrogant. I hate him yeah. because he's arrogant. It's like, he, he, you know, you can't have it both ways. You, you got to choose one and hate the guy for that. You can't, <laughs> yeah. you can't hate him for both things. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think, I do think that's where, uh, he like image wise is at his weakest is when he tries to play the like, I'm just a regular guy, just a, a regular humble dude like you. And it's like, uh, you're not you're not anything like most people. That's why we pay to watch you work like most of us. That's that's not the case. I would posit that there probably are no, quote unquote, regular guys in the UFC, period. Yeah, probably not. I mean, there's just it's not the line of work for you. If you're if you're a regular guy, so I, yeah, I mean maybe you could say that John Jones should just drop that altogether, not even try uh, to relate to these people because at this point, uh, you know, you're a 25 year old, I assume millionaire, uh, who is at the top of his field and might go down as one of the greatest athletes in the history of his sport by the time his career is over. Uh, I feel like in other sports they don't put that on somebody though to say like, yeah, but we don't like him. You know, he, he doesn't seem he doesn't seem like, uh, you know, somebody you'd like to have as your neighbor or something like you don't care. You just want to watch him be awesome at his sport. I, I feel like that's we should just resign ourselves to that's how it is with John Jones as well. Uh, and and move on from there. Stop talking about whether you like him. In retrospect, it seems a little weird that we were surprised, and I know I was surprised, so I'm not trying to put it on other people, but it seems a little bit weird that we were all so surprised by the fact that he came out and, and took Chael Sonnen down and essentially made a point of doing the thing that Chael Sonnen is supposed to be really good at, 
better because yeah, immediately now, yeah now it seems like maybe that's his thing because i feel like we've seen him do this a couple of times where he goes out in a fight against rampage rampage is supposed to be this striker you know a really good striker and jones after the fight is like well i wanted to make the point that i could strike with him you know so i feel like maybe that's his gimmick is that becoming the thing that he does because if so that's a pretty awesome thing to be it is an awesome gimmick. it's like the anti uh, George St. Pierre thing where he is a good enough wrestler and a good enough striker to be like, okay, which one of those are you weaker at? Uh, and I'll, I'll attack that. And instead, John Jones, in a way, a lot like Anderson Silva, uh, just kind of like where how Anderson Silva will back up against the fence and be like, is this where you want me? You think this is a good idea for you? All right, I'll, I'll come over here. Let, let's see what you can do there. Uh, but John Jones has the wrestling background to be like, all right, I can put you on your back if I feel like it. I can do exactly what you would, would think you want to do to me, to you. Uh, and, you know, I can do a whole bunch of other shit that you haven't even thought of yet. <laughs> well, now, and I think we also have this sort of palpable feeling of being really glad to be over with this one, done with it, put it in the past. And now John Jones can sort of get back to the business of fighting actual light heavyweights, defending his title, continuing on this grand March that he was on before he got sidetracked by Vitor Belfort and Chael Sonnen and the cancellation of UFC 151. Uh, so what do you think is the right move for him to do to do next? Who's the right matchup next? I know he he talked about Alexander Gustafson uh, in the post-fight press conference, and also there's talk that Daniel Cormier might come down from heavyweight. Personally, I think Gustafson is probably the better choice, at least in the immediate, because I like to see dudes get a win in the new weight class that they're in. I'd like to see Cormier come down and, and, and fight somebody of some repute just to see, uh, you know, the, what, if the weight cut takes anything out of him, because I think with Cormier, there's always this idea that he's going to be even better at light heavyweight. Yeah. We and, don't necessarily know that. Right. I'd like, just like to see him prove it once before we go ahead and give him a title shot. Where are you on that? Yeah. I, I think Gustafson is the guy who makes the most sense. It's also that, uh, I think one thing people come away with after watching John Jones just absolutely destroy Chael Sonnen is, hey, man, that's a really impressive performance. Chael Sonnen is a tough dude, uh, probably top five middleweight. Uh, but you look at them standing next to each other at the press conference or at the weigh-ins or whatever, and you think, these guys don't seem like they're in the same weight class. Because well, in they're fact, seem not. like they're two weight classes apart, <laughs> yeah. which they actually are. Yeah, well, and I think that's then what gives people uh, – Something to to chip away at after they see this really impressive performance with John Jones. They say, well, yeah, but he did it to a much smaller guy. And you can say the same thing about it with Vitor Belfort. So, yeah, let's see him fight another big dude like Alexander Gustafson. Another tall, rangy, long, you know, dude with a, who showed up, had a lot of natural ability, and then has, has only gotten sharper and, and closed up some of the holes in his game. You know, let, let's see how that one plays out. I mean, I think the problem is that now that you put him in this, you know, money fight, basically, with just to drum up pay-per-view buys uh, against Chael Sonnen, and then he goes and snaps his toe in half, that might take a little while for him to be ready to fight. And Gustafson just was ready to fight and got pulled out because of that cut. You know, he's probably getting to the point where, you know, he needs a fight. He needs to get active. Uh, you could have him fight Machida, but again... If you're the UFC, please only do that if you're willing to give a title shot to whoever wins. You know, don't do that if you're just hoping to see if Gustafson wins, then we can better make the case for him fighting John Jones. Yeah, the timing might turn out to be a little weird considering how severe it turns out that the toe the is. Toe. The dreaded toe, the glass toe. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock's here, and we're going to get with him to engage in another 
activity of Master Tweet Theater. Oh boy. And that begins right now. It's that time again, time when we welcome back friend of the podcast, noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am raring to go. Raring? Oh, sorry, sorry, I misspoke. I am going to rare. God damn it. All right. Well, for those of you who don't know how this works, Master Tweet Theater is a segment wherein Sir Nigel Longstock will dramatically read uh, a series of five different tweets from five different MMA figures. Chad and I will try and guess. Sir Nigel will probably make it weirder than it has to be. Yes. <laughs> and then we'll kick him out of here. Uh, Sir Nigel, whenever you're ready, hit us with the first one. Yes, very good. There's a theme to this week's tweet. Oh, good. I love when there's a theme. The theme is positive thinking. Well, Chad, are you ready for this? You don't look ready. Oh, I have a positive mental attitude about this for sure. Especially now that I've learned that Matt Mitrione is back on Twitter. What? That's what I heard via the internet. Wow. So... I will no longer have to just guess Sean McCorkle every time. <laughs> well, this, I wish I'd known this coming in, but all right. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. Positive tweet the first. Word of the week for my boys is presentation. Last week was patiences. <laughs> I got this one. I saw this one when it went up. And obviously, uh, a tweet that fantastic, you remember it. That's wordsmith Tito Ortiz. Yes, that in fact is the Huntington Beach bad boy, or as we like to call him for brevity's sake, the hubba <laughs> It is in fact the hubba <laughs> Tito Ortiz. Also, uh, patience was only the word of the week for one week. <laughs> <laughs> um, did he also teach his boys that uh, patience is, is a virtues? <laughs> Patience is, is a virtue, sir. Also, boys spelled with the Z for extra coolness. Oh, wow. <clears throat> wow. All right. Tweet the second. This tweet uh, will involve a name, which, of course, has been redacted. Oh, good. <clears throat> cool hanging with you, bro. Retweet. Turned with name redacted. What the fuck are you saying? I, are you just making sounds? The the original tweeter, whom you must guess, has retweeted the tweet, turned with name Spell redacted. that. Spell that. T-U-R-N-T-T-T-T with... That was, that's what I was afraid it was. Yes. Turned and burnt, one presumes. Okay, and so someone else tweeted that to the tweeter... Yes, and the tweeter then, retweets it and adds, cool hanging with you, bro. Okay, so the tweeter we're trying to guess is the one who added the cool hanging with you, bro. Yes. Okay, so someone who is hanging with a person who had a stroke while trying to tweet and enjoyed it, uh, hanging with that person, that is, I'm going to say uh, noted Abraham Lincoln lover and author Uriah Faber. Actually, this one is Dana White tweeting at, in reply to uh, Waka Flocka Flame, who tweeted to him, turned, and posted a photo of them hanging out together, wherein Waka Flocka Flame looks like some kind of fucking weird giant. (laughs) 
Wait a minute. So you you knew all this the whole time that I was trying to figure this out. That's right. What is is turnt a thing? No idea. I, I believe it means to be uh, well dressed and cool looking, as if you were turned out, but not, of course, turned out to become a prostitute. Yeah. See, seriously though, in the picture, Waka Flocka Flam looks like fucking Bigfoot Silva or something. He makes Dana White look like a child. I assume he's standing up on something because otherwise he's like seven foot five. Why didn't you mention that there was a picture involved, Sir Nigel? Well, because then I would have to describe it to you, and you seemed impatient already. <laughs> Fair enough. Damn it. <clears throat> Tweet the third. A very good showing for Chad, I might add. I don't remember how many points Ben oh, had. Oh, he piggybacked on my Tito Ortiz one. I was all over that. That That is true. And yet, yet still, he remains a fan favorite. <clears throat> Tweet the third. Success is not solely measured by the amount of money that you have, but more so by the goals that you have accomplished. The real! End quote. Chad, you want to correct this one first? Well, I don't know that one. I would have to guess. Um, That's kind of the point. And so I guess I'll guess Matt, Matt Mitrione, just to, uh, just to get, a, get it back in the, in the lexicon. The real, huh? What is that about? Um... You know, if if Chad's going to say Matt Mitrione, I guess I'm going to go with uh, poor man's Matt Mitrione, Sean McCorkle. Both fine guesses, both as usual wrong. It is Dwayne Bang Ludwig claiming that he is retweeting Rick Ross, although I am skeptical. Yeah, everything about uh, Rick Ross's uh, worldview seems to suggest that he thinks uh, the amount of money you have is pretty damn important. Absolutely solely determined success by the amount of money he has. Hmm. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. I'm glad to hear Dwayne Bang Ludwig taking the stand that uh, success is determined by how many accomplishments you achieve, though. That's bold. <clears throat> what a dick Sir Nigel is today. Oh, yes. Tweet the fourth. Congrats, Roy. Don't worry. I'll be back. The greatest glory in living lies not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. Whoa. Well, <sighs> Logically, it would seem like, based on the context, that's Czech Congo, and yet I cannot believe that Czech Congo sat down and wrote that tweet. Yeah, if that's Czech Congo, then I need to start following Czech Congo on Twitter, I guess. Is yeah, and, I, and if we did that, then we'd probably know more about the goings-on at his high-end fashion boutique, right? We'd know in, like when the scarves are going on sale and stuff? Yes, we would also know, perhaps, what he was thinking. During his fight with Roy Nelson, where he stood around like a guy waiting for the bus until he got knocked out. I think what he was thinking was, I hope he doesn't throw that big right hit. Oh, God. I'm it, saying Czech Congo. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, but Czech Congo. It is Czech Congo. First of all, his fashion boutique is obviously called the Coat Czech. Um, <laughs> second, the claim that Czech Congo did not write this tweet is accurate since that <laughs> aphorism was written by Batman's butler in the Batman movie. <laughs> What? Why do we fall, sir? So we can pick ourselves up. <laughs> well, see, how is it that you can do a pretty decent uh, Alfred, you, but your Bisping is awful? How, how does that work? My Bisping is perfect. It is your ears which are flawed, sir. God damn it. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. I need a bisexual girlfriend who loves fucking other bitches as much as me. Non-stop threesome. Pow, pow! <laughs> Whoa, I see now why you saved that one for last. Oh, yes. Really let you get into it. Positive thinking. <laughs> Positive thinking, indeed. That's got to be War Machine. Got to be. Oh, I was going to go poet Phil Baroni there. Oh, well, damn it. All right, well, Sir Nigel? It is War Machine. Oh, what? No! 
Pow, pow, motherfuckers. Pow, pow. pow. War machine ejaculates, apparently. <laughs> well, I mean, everyone needs a catchphrase to say when they ejaculate, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Especially war machine, since people are almost <laughs> always watching him. <laughs> well... Thus ends another rousing or raring, maybe, edition of Master Tweet Theater. So, Nigel, what are you up to? Well, it's funny you should ask, Yes, sir. isn't it? I am currently in early shooting for Teen Wolf 3, Adult Wolf. <laughs> and what role do you play? Uh, I play the wolf, sir. <laughs> There's just one wolf. Well, right? not the main wolf. I actually play one of the background wolves. Well, you know... Honestly, I've always said about you, that man would make an awesome background wolf. Absolutely, sir. You should have seen my audition. I licked myself vigorously. (laughs) Well, we'll leave you with that image. That was Sir Nigel Longstock, and that was Master Tweet Theater. Good day, sir. Chad, Chelsonen promised that if he went down, he would go down like a gangster, which apparently means on your back trying to cover up the sensitive parts of your face while a big scary dude elbows you in the head. Now, what happened, what we feared would happen to Chelsonen has happened. He lost a second straight title fight, this time in a new weight class, wasn't even a little bit competitive in the fight, basically just laid there and, and bled on John Jones. Now he wakes up. 36-year-old pro fighter, what does he do now? Well, I think he should retire, I guess. I mean, here's the thing that I've always believed about Chael Sonnen. We've we've always made a big deal out of this persona that he's invented, the the superstar Billy Graham boosting, very recently Razor Ramon borrowing uh, kind of professional wrestling persona that he created for himself, frankly, with a lot of success because he – transformed himself from this middling, uh, kind of, uh, you know, mild-mannered middleweight, uh, who apparently in 2009, uh, Joe Silva didn't even have his phone number because we've all heard the story where Chael Sonnen texts him to try to uh, get himself into the light heavyweight fight against Brandon Vera at UFC 102, and uh, Joe Silva texts him back, who is this? <laughs> and that, in fact, may have been the genesis uh, the origin story, if you will, for the man that we've come to know as Chael P. Sonnen, the guy who is the shit-talking, uh, uh, you know, professional wrestling kind of uh, heel character. And I think that there is this perception out there that people say he did that for the money. And I think that's probably half true. But the other thing about Chael Sonnen that I believe to be 100% real and actually legitimate is his internal need and desire to be a champion. I think that that is very real for him. And I think just as much for the money, I feel like he invented this persona and used it to talk himself into these fights for the glory and the chance to win a world title. There's also the story of him promising his dad before his dad passed away that, you know, he would go out and win a world title for him. I think also he promised his dad that he would beat Tito Ortiz for the UFC title, which tells you <laughs> something about that, that era. Yeah. But I think all that stuff is real from Chael. I think yeah. that he really, really wanted to be a champion. And now he said it him, <coughs> excuse me, he said it himself in the cage after the fight. If there's not a path to the title, I don't know if this sport is for me anymore. And I feel like that's 
a very real thing. And I, I feel like if he's not going to get that opportunity, which I don't think he is now that he's lost three UFC title fights, it's probably not for him anymore. I don't think he would be interested with going back to the middle of the pack. You know, I think you're totally right. And I think that this is something that people, it's easy to forget because of the persona that he has created. And because it seems to be from the outside, kind of like this, like a moral relativist uh, position that he's adopted where, okay, I'll say anything. I'll say absolutely anything that gets attention. The truth doesn't mean anything. I'll, I'll, I'll work around the truth. I'll outright lie about who I've beaten and who I haven't, you know, and people know that I'm lying. And so, uh, you know, they're in on the joke and it's this kind of like, you know, this fun thing that, that we're all doing together. But I think what gets lost in that is exactly what you said. I mean, nobody gets into this sport just because they want to make some money, especially when you get into it at the time in the sports evolution that Chael Sonnen did. There wasn't a whole lot of money in it. I mean, you get into that because you want to get in there and fight dudes and you stay in it because you're good at fighting dudes. Uh, and for him, for us to look at him now and say like, uh, well, he just, he pulled off a big con and he's totally happy. He's laughing all the way to the bank. He doesn't care that, you know, he, he got beat up by John Jones. He knew that was going to happen. Just like everybody knew it was going to happen. No, I think he talked himself into believing that he could compete with John Jones. Uh, and it turned out that John, like, Chael Sonnen, while he's a really, really good middleweight, John Jones is a great light heavyweight and a really, really good middleweight just doesn't stand much chance against a great light heavyweight. I still think that's probably heartbreaking for him. Uh, for, for Chelsea you know, to, to have to realize that and realize that while the dude is elbowing you in the head, yeah. I, I'm sure that's not very much fun, but I do think that we, because of this persona have forgotten that, you know, this is a guy who he's a fighter. He really wants to fight. And so it, it would make sense now if, if the only thing you could do now is hang around and, you know, half-heartedly shit talk your way into fights with Vanderlei Silva, uh, that, maybe that would not seem worth it, especially if you don't absolutely have to, if you can make right. money putting on a suit and doing the commentary thing. Well, and I think two other things. I think, first of all, that the Chael P. Sonnen shit-talking character, for, for whatever reason, wouldn't stand up anymore to, you know, trying to to trash-talk your way into sort of middling, mid-level fights. For whatever reason, I feel like it was a real integral part of his personality and this persona that he had invented, that he was doing it at the highest level. Yeah. When maybe we thought he shouldn't be there, you know? And, and, and he, you know, when he was talking shit, he wasn't just talking shit about the Vanderlei Silva's, Rich Franklin's, or Kung Lee's of the world. He was talking shit about Anderson Silva. Yeah. He was talking shit about John Jones, men who could le likely legitimately murder him with their bare hands. But this John Jones one is the first time I think where it got, uh, it kind of jumped the shark because, like, like Dana White pointed out before, if you look at how he got that first fight with Anderson Silva, I mean, yeah, he, he made it more interesting by talking his way, you know, by, by talking it up beforehand and kind of just to, to the surprise of a lot of us. But he won fights to get that. You know, he, he, he beat Yushin Okami, then he beat Nate Marquardt when everybody thought like, hey, this is Nate Marquardt's chance to get the rematch with Anderson Silva. And he beat Nate Marquardt. That's how he got that fight. Then his performance in that fight made us want to see it again. Uh, but, you know, just in case that wasn't good enough, you know, and he had that time off because of the testosterone thing. So then he beat Brian Stan and Michael Bisping, two other good middleweights. I mean, and then that's when he got the Anderson Silva fight. So he didn't just talk his way into, I mean, he, he, 
He helped himself out with uh, his ability to hype the fight, but he was deserving of those fights when they happened. This one with John Jones was the first one where he was really, truly in no way deserving. Had, does not have a UFC win at light heavyweight, was coming off a loss uh, to the middleweight champion. No reason at all other than the his ability to sell pay-per-view buys and get a lot of media attention for him to fight John Jones. So they, it went as far as it could possibly go on yeah. this one. Yeah, and the other thing that I was going to say about why I said at the top of the round that I I think he should probably retire. It would feel to me, you know, whether or not he deserves this, he may well deserve this outcome, but it would feel sad to me for Chael to, to once again go back to the middle of the pack because that's where he started. That's why he invented this character was to, so he wouldn't have to finish out his career at the guy who was the biggest name on the really small show, you know, yeah. so he wouldn't have to just keep beating up Casey Uzcola and Amar Sulawev at Sport Fight and Bodog and stuff like that, which is, you know, like we said last week, that's where it looked like he was going to finish his career in like 2006, 2007. So for him to have this march to these three title fights, way better than we ever thought he would do. And frankly, way better than he ever deserved. And for him to, to then, in the wake of all that, take a step back and, you know, fight Vanderlei Silva or something to me would feel like he had already reached the, the climax of his career and was now kind of receding back to the same place where he started. Yeah. And I think that. If, especially Dana White keeps talking about how Fox loves him. Fox loves to have him on broadcast. And Dana even thinks he could do broadcasting for other sports for Fox. And he definitely has uh, other options. He doesn't have to just keep getting in there just to, to keep the lights on. You know, and one of the things, you know, when I spent time around him uh, and uh, talked to members of his family and stuff, one of the things that they kept saying was that, you know, people think that this was an entirely invented persona. And they said... You know, it's really more like turning up the volume on the guy they already knew. Right. Uh, that he kind of just cranked up his natural tendencies there. Uh, and that's what people were responding to. And so now, like, it would feel sad if he had to keep doing that. Uh, you know, it, it's the kind of thing where, you know... If you're like some actor who's been, you know, you got a catchphrase on some sitcom and then 20 years later you show up at the shopping mall and everybody is just yelling at you to do your catchphrase and you're like, oh God. It's like if you're Hunter S. Thompson and you create this character for yourself that everywhere you go, you're going to get completely shit faced and yeah. fucked out of your mind on drugs. And then by the time you turn like 60, <laughs> you're just like, oh Jesus Christ, when I go on this book tour to this next town, all these 20 year old kids are going to come out and be like, Hey man, drink this whole bottle of wild Turkey and drop this acid. And let's get crazy. Yeah. No one's going to let you just do your reading and go yeah. back to the hotel. And then you end up killing yourself, I guess. At yeah. some point is the moral of the story. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I do think that that would be sad to have him kind of get locked into that and be forced to, to play that out. I mean, he went, I think, as far as he can possibly go as a fighter. You know, he, he's moving toward toward 40 now, uh, even with the TRT that helps him look huge at 205 pounds. Yeah, weird how the UFC, like, wholeheartedly embraces that angle, just yeah. like they did for Overeem. You know, when, when Overeem was taking the cage against Bigfoot Silva, Joe Rogan, I guess you, you have to either respect his honesty or, or wonder what he's thinking, you know, at the time when he's just like, Alistair Overeem's weight gains have really been remarkable. Like before, without <laughs> he seemingly didn't say that they any, raised some eyebrows. Yeah, without seemingly any irony. And then they kind of did the same thing for Chael this past week, where they talked about how big and strong he was at 230 pounds at, at light heavyweight, and had been ragdolling people in the gym during practice. And I mean, I guess thank God the treatment is working. Yeah, you know, yeah. because otherwise he'd be at home 
practically yeah. on his deathbed. Just a ninety pound weakling. Do you think unable that, to lift a glass of water for his to his parched lips? <laughs> do we do we owe it to history to remember him first and foremost as a guy who used testosterone replacement therapy, or does this like persona that he created and his ability to get into these title fights trump all that even? You know, I think that that's going to be the dominant thing. You know, his his ability to to become through like his own will, basically uh, a superstar, even without winning a, a UFC title. I mean, the way that he can he he became this kind of moving spotlight that other fighters could share in just by fighting him, but just by getting close enough to it. And that's one of the things I think we saw with this fight that it was a triumph of hype. Uh, the fight was nowhere near competitive. John Jones is way better, but the the ability to sell it as something that it was not was sort of an achievement for the UFC and for Chael Sona. I think that that's something that we'll remember, but I also hope that we don't forget that testosterone stuff, especially if we move in the direction that I hope we do, where we get rid of that stuff in the sport. Uh, I think it will be worth looking back on and being like, oh yeah, remember the TRT era? Because Chael Sonnen's rise to prominence really coincided with that it did indeed all right let's do are you fucking kidding me and then we will move on to round number three are you fucking kidding me the most uh, self-explanatory part of the co-main event podcast ben what's your are you fucking kidding me for this week my are you fucking kidding me goes out to one michael bisping who had for two and three quarter rounds an awesome performance against alan belcher just outstruck Alan Belcher, just seemed to have a, a magnetic attraction between his right hand and Alan Belcher's jaw, uh, and left Belcher in that third round with his corner yelling at him that he had to do something dynamic, had to do something explosive. And Belcher's couldn't do anything, because Bisping had his number in every single way and was just dominating the fight. And then Bisping eye-pokes him, a pretty bad eye-poke. When you can, after he pokes him, you can even see his fingers scratching on uh, Belcher's shoulder as they drift away. His fingers are just totally open, flung at the man's eyeballs belcher collapses in obvious pain there's bleeding coming from his eye uh he ends up having to go get stitches on his eyelid because of it bisping apologizes in the cage but afterwards at the press conference suggests that he thinks that maybe alan belcher quote laid on the floor a little bit who knows bisping said i think maybe he looked for a way out that's what michael bisping said after he poked the dude in the eye a foul so egregiously that the dude had to go have stitches in that eye. Are you fucking kidding me, Michael Bisping? You had a win and a good, solid, impressive, uh, great performance in that win. You had it all sewn up. And then you had to go and do something so Michael Bisping-ish at the end. <laughs> you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Speaking of which, my are you fucking kidding me this week goes out to Nate Diaz uh -oh. for doing possibly the most Diaz thing of all time following his... TKO corner towel throwing loss to Josh Thompson uh, a couple weeks back. I just want to read this quote from from Nate Diaz when he was on the uh, BJPen.com radio show. He did an interview with BJPen.com. Okay. Here's his quote. The last guy I fought, Josh Thompson, he was scared shitless when I was fighting him. <laughs> it's unbelievable how scared he was in there. He was running for his life. He was making woman noises when I was hitting him. Woman noises? He was making little bitch-ass lady sounds. And not that... And, and that's not bullshit. I'm here. To, I'm not here talking shit on him. This is reality. He was making woman sounds. He was running out of the clinch. I hit him in the face and he was going, oh, oh, eh, making woman sounds. Sounds I had never heard out of a man before during a fight. I'm hearing his corner tell him to smile. And I'm like, yeah, smile, motherfucker. And not a single smile came out of his mouth. <laughs> 
Nate Diaz, are you fucking kidding me? What is does Nate Diaz upset that he has developed the reputation as the reasonable Diaz brother? Well, apparently, yeah, because he, he just came out of the booth, so to speak, with some <laughs> crazy shit. I so. also I wonder are are lady sounds? Is that like when Mike Tyson referred to an opponent making feminine gestures while he was hitting him? I have to assume those are the same thing because. Frankly, I do not know. (laughs) Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, so much weird stuff happened at UFC 159 that it's almost hard to know where to begin. So I think I'm just going to read this question that we got from uh, Corbin McLaren sent to us for uh, listener mail. We didn't get to it then, but I feel like it still applies here. Corbin writes, on Saturday, the MMA gods sat on Mount Zions and proceeded to do anything (laughs) that their supreme power to disrupt UFC 159. Out of all the crazy riffraff that happened, I want to know this. What the hell was up with the Volante versus Ovin St. Prue fight? It seemed like Kevin Mulhall employed the, well, you must be blind forever approach (laughs) to dealing with the eye poke and stopped the fight immediately. I don't know what happened. Did he think it was a punch? Did he just really not know what to do if a fighter gets poked in the eye? If Congo landed a low blow on Nelson, would he have stopped that fight as well? I think I feel like that's a pretty good introduction to some of the weird stuff we saw because we did see a couple of eye pokes. We talked about one of them. Let's just let's just list some weird stuff that happened. Okay, you okay, had, you had that. Uh, Oven say Prue pokes uh, Viante in the eye, and we just get stopped because Viante can't see immediately out of that eye that he was just poked in. That's weird, right? Then you have uh, Rustam Hobbylove. Uh, breaking Yancey Medeiros' thumb, uh, by when, while trying to suplex him. So that one ends in the first round due to th- messed up thumb, basically. Uh, then of course, there's the toe. There's Michael Bisping po- poking Alan Belcher in the eye. Uh, you've got Bruce Buffer with a rare miss, uh, messing up the, the, the winner announcement in the Pat Healy Jim Miller fight. You've got the weird demonic voice, which somehow makes an appearance during the pay-per-view broadcast. Uh, and then we see, uh, I'm alerted to by Middle Easy, the UFC.TV uh, audio feed during the fights <laughs> includes two people talking about how they think MMA kind of sucks. Yeah, gay is what I believe they what said about it. What the fuck is going on? This has got to be the continuation of the curse of UFC 151, right? After the <laughs> the uh, the cancellation of that show, this was supposed to be the show where we kind of wrapped all that up because Jones was finally going to get this monkey off his back of of fighting Chael Sonnen. I think that uh, that's I think the MMA gods were mad about the matchmaking here. Jo- Chael Sonnen versus John Jones, they said. No, the MMA gods will not be mocked. They will not be mocked. They they will they will have their vengeance, and they had it in UFC 159 by just making the whole. So goddamn weird. It was definitely uh, the strangest UFC that I can that I can recall because I don't even remember ever seeing a technical decision before, which is I think what the official outcome yeah. of of two fights two were fights. on this card, right? Well, in the one in the Owen St. Prue Viante fight, it happened so early in the third round that. Then you go to the judges and say, "Okay, score that third round for us and give us your card." Well, you saw thirty seconds of the round. Uh, and part of that 30 seconds was one dude getting poked in the eye. So you kind of have to just score at a 10-10. In other words, like you're not really scoring it at all at that point. Uh, and then, you know, to go to the scorecards after that, it, you know, 
it just seems like nobody's going to be satisfied with that no matter what happens. And that is one of the things that the UFC, I think, is going to ask uh, for a change to the unified rules so that the referee isn't just saying immediately, can you see? Can you see out of that eye where the dude just put his thumb in there? No? All right, fight's over. Like, no. And I, again, I'll steal another one of my wife's uh, funny quips uh, while we were watching the pay-per-view broadcast is how why should you get five minutes if you get kicked in the balls but not five minutes if you get poked in the eye when, as she put it, quote, the eyes are the balls of the face. <laughs> Which I don't uh, think any of us can disagree no, with. Yeah, that's 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 pretty true. Now, did both of the dudes who poked their opponents in the eye win their fights? Yes. Oh, that's weird. That <laughs> makes it seem almost like you should almost always cheat in an MMA fight. Yeah. Huh. Well, and oh, I, I've never heard that. Before. I believe it was also Ovin St. Prue who early on in that fight uh, grabbed the top of the cage to avoid a takedown. Tim Sylvia style. Yeah, which is smart because. You know, since you, you you know you get at least one warning uh, for all that stuff, you want to save your fence grab for later on when you really need it. Go ahead and grab the top of the cage now so then when the dude warns you, you're like, oh, okay, no grabbing the top of the cage. I am new to this sport and have never seen it before, <laughs> so I didn't know. And then later on, you can grab the fence and it's be like, well, hey, that's not the top of the cage. Oh, I can't grab this either? Well, oh, what geez. can I grab, okay. Mr. Referee? <laughs> uh, I did read a report on – actually on Fight Linker before we recorded this about the demonic voice – that apparently some kids who were sitting in the front row of, of the UFC found one of their uh, uh, crowd mics, I guess you would say, taped to the uh, to the front of the the barrier where they were sitting, and they took they took it out, and I guess what they said was Jerry rips. What does that mean? I don't know. Maybe Jerry's one of their friends. I just I wanted to say that he ripped. See, we don't understand the kids these days. No, the man, youth culture. Weird. But see, can't this is why the boys. You, can, you can't have kids <laughs> sitting in the front row at a UFC event. I want only uh, fighters and their managers or uh, B-list movie stars mm -hmm. or Chuck porn Zito. stars. Chuck Zito could be there. Well, I said uh, B-list. Waka uh, Flocka Flame could uh, be front <laughs> be row. Be there looking for, like a giant. For the UFC. Uh, or, yeah, or, or uh, adult film stars. That's it. You know, you know, these kids can't be trusted, obviously. They ruined it for everyone. They, yeah, they couldn't handle the responsibility of, of sitting cage side. Uh, yeah, no, it just turned out to be just a very strange event. We dodged a, maybe the biggest bullet of all in the main event, but, uh, just some very weird happenings, uh, uh, all the way through. Well, oh, and another thing we forgot to mention, uh, Right before, like the day before his fight with Vinny Magalhaes, uh, Phil Davis gets his name splashed all over TMZ, uh, for, you know, he's in a custody battle with his girlfriend who accuses him of sexual assault and says that, uh, his multiple MMA fights, in which he really hasn't really taken that much damage, uh, have, have made him unstable mentally and that she's scared of him. And that obviously seems like that's timed to fuck with Phil Davis going into this fight. Just weird stuff, even beforehand. Well, it certainly didn't seem to inhibit Phil Davis's performance any, no. since he came out and looked much improved against uh, uh, Vinny Magalhaes. It's, it's the kind of fight where you don't know how much credit to give him yeah. for his improved stand-up because level of competition might have had something to do with it. Uh, uh, but also, hey, man, kudos to Phil Davis. He looked pretty good, unless yeah. all that stuff about him beating up his girlfriend is true, <laughs> in which case no kudos for Phil Davis. In, in that case, we will rescind your kudos. But, I mean, you, you you and I both met Phil Davis. Hard for me to believe that about Phil yeah, Davis. Yeah, he seems like a nice dude. Yeah. Uh, also, while we're giving out some daps, uh, how about Sarah McMahon? I mean, Sheila Gaff did make it a little easier on her by saying, oh, you're a silver medalist in Olympic wrestling? I'm just going to walk straight at you. Just standing, standing straight up and, and just walk right at you and see what happens. Well, what happens is you get planted on the mat 
but uh, Sarah McMahon, like we expected she would, went in there, made short work of Sheila Gaff. Uh, when you look at Sarah McMahon, and granted we haven't seen that much of a body of work yet to judge, do you think that this is going to be the eventual big challenger for Ronda Rousey? I think she's one of them. I think she she's a, a, a pretty intriguing talent in that division. At the same time, though, her biggest strength plays right into Ronda Rousey's biggest strength, uh, Sarah McMahon. If, if indeed, you know, her, the number one thing that she does is sort of takedowns and top control and ground and pound, kind of where Ronda Rousey wants to be is, is, is right there yeah, where she can apply the arm bar. But not necessarily how Ronda Rousey wants to get there. Uh, Ronda Rousey is most successful, I think, when she can do that judo throw and she's immediately getting her hips under your arm, you know, before you even land. And it's already working at setting up the arm bar. And so that she, she just starts so far into the arm bar process that then it's up to you to try and work out of it and work out of it fast. I mean, especially if you know that that's the thing you have to worry about. Uh, if you're Sarah McMahon and you can choose when and where you, and how you put her down, uh, then, you know, maybe you have a little better chance staying out of the armbar. Although I did talk to uh, Kat Zingano and her husband slash uh, trainer Mauricio Zingano, and I asked, "So what are you? Are you just spending the next few months just doing armbar defense? Is that is that the whole every day just eating a steady diet of armbar defense cornflakes?" Um, to which he replied, "No, we're not doing any more armbar defense than normal. She knows how to defend an armbar, uh, and she'll do it normally while we're training." Huh? Yeah, I don't know if he was just trying to. Trying to do a little gamesmanship there or not, uh, or if they figure we got this armbar thing locked down. But uh, I don't know. A lot of people that figure, have figured that yeah. and it hasn't turned out to be true. Let's hope they were just fucking with you. <laughs> um, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, this week, my just saying stuff uh, has to do with the reaction of the UFC president to the main event of UFC 159, where... As I believe you wrote on, on MMA Junkie this week, Chael Sonnen damn near won the light heavyweight title after doing nothing but laying on the canvas and bleeding for five minutes, which was a good line. Uh, somebody asked Dana White about it during the post-fight media scrum, and, and Dana White, in response to the idea that Chael might have won the fight, said, oh man, that would have been terrible if that had happened. <laughs> well, in fairness, I think he was talking about not just that that Chael almost became the champion, but then with John Jones right, being right, out right. with that toe, he probably would have had to defend the title against someone else. Yeah, but I'm just saying, if that's your response to one of the two guys that you just put in the main event winning, maybe don't make that fight. I'm just saying. <laughs> just saying. I'm just saying that uh, Dana White also revealed that the reason the bonuses, the, the, the fight on the night, knockout of the night, submission of the night bonuses were $65,000 instead of fifty, which the UFC had said a few weeks ago was going to be this, the go-to. It was always going to be fifty from now on. And then this time we hear there's 65000 Apparently it's because uh, prelim fighter Brian Caraway negotiated it in the locker room, just wouldn't leave Dana White alone about it, talked about how he had taken the fight on short notice, had a tough weight cut, a bunch of other people had you know stepped up for the UFC, made sure that they had a full fight card here, uh, and he's, he was on another fight card where it was 65,000. So why is this one worth any less? And according to Dana White, he just wouldn't stop talking. Uh, <laughs> and in the end, Dana White caved, which tells us, A, now you know how to negotiate with Dana White is you just never shut up and you just wear him down. And B, next time you need to negotiate anything, bring Brian Caraway. I mean, are you starting to understand how he, he uh, got a great looking girl like Misha Tate uh, with a really successful fighting career to, to stick with him. 
Now you get it. He just doesn't stop talking. He, you ask, he asks a girl out on a date. She says, no, Brian Caraway just keeps talking, keeps talking, keeps asking. Eventually, next thing you know, it's six months in and you guys are living together. You don't even know how it happened. That's Brian Caraway. Just saying. Jesus, just saying. Maybe uh, Chris Cyborg Santos might want to think about taking Brian Caraway on as her official representation. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week figuring out some stuff to talk about, about mixed martial arts. As for right now, we're done. We're through. We're out. Next time I want some music, that's I'm going to do Brian Caraway. I go there to buy a coffee from the Dragon of the